Let's make a deal. Debuted on television in December 1963. The premise of the show involved guests wearing crazy costumes, winning merchandise, and being offered the opportunity to take the items they had already won and trade them for items they could not see. The items were hidden behind doors or in boxes, and the contestant had to make a choice. If they chose to trade the prizes they had already won, they might get something better, or they might get a zonk. That is, they might leave with something worthless. You know, the show succeeded because there was always someone willing to make a deal. There was always someone ready to compromise by trading what they already had for what they thought would be something better. This morning we continue our study in Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 to 32. God's chosen people are in slavery in Egypt. God has sent Moses to Pharaoh to demand he let his people go. When Pharaoh refuses, God sends the plagues on Pharaoh, Egyptians, and the land. And, and, the land. and we've seen three plagues so far. Water to blood, frogs, and gnats. Pharaoh has hardened his heart toward the Lord and has refused to let the people go three times now. In the second plague, Pharaoh outright lied, saying that he would let the people go if Moses would pray to God to take the frogs away. In the fourth plague this morning, we're going to see a let's make a deal scenario. As Pharaoh offers to let God's people go, but only on his terms. He will attach a condition or a compromise to their leaving. He will, in effect, say to Moses, I know that God said to let his people go, but first, let's make a deal. He wanted Moses and Israel to compromise that which God had promised them, which was total freedom from slavery, for something much less. You know that goes the same for us today. Pharaoh stands for, the, for Satan, Egypt stands for the world, and the children of Israel stands for the church, all those who are saved by grace. When we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and commit our lives to the Lord, we are called to leave the world and our old master Satan behind. The world and Satan are forever trying to call us back to our old selves and convince us to make a deal with him and to compromise our faith. But with the devil, there's no upgrades, only zonks. Satan wants us to compromise by trading what we already have from the Lord for something much less. You know, God wants us to lead a life of obedience that is spirit-filled and blessed by him. And the devil wants us to trade the blessings of God for the rubbish or the trash of this world. And he will offer us every compromise at his disposal in an attempt to lead us astray. And sadly, many people, Christians included, will fall for his tricks. But don't be discouraged this morning. John 16, says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. By the cross, Jesus has conquered Satan in the grave, and with the Holy Spirit living within us and helping us to obey all that Jesus commanded, we have the power to overcome Satan in the world. We do not have to trade the blessings of God for something less. We don't have to compromise with Satan or, in the, or the world 
Which brings us to our big idea this morning, that God calls his people to obedience, not compromise. And like I said, with the Holy Spirit within us, it can be done. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would open our ears, our eyes, our hearts, and our minds to your word this morning. Do not let us leave this place unaffected or unchanged. Help us to be obedient to your commands and not compromise the great things we have with you for the trash of this world that Satan wants to give us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit within us. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Three points this morning. The first one is complete and found in chapter 8, verses 20 to 24. Please follow along as I read those verses. This is what God's word says. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people, and this sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. So this is the beginning of the fourth plague, and it's the second cycle of plagues that God has sent against Pharaoh in Egypt. The first cycle consisted of water turning to blood, frogs, and gnats. The fourth plague is going to be similar to the first plague. The fifth will be similar to the second, and six will be similar to the third. The first similarity is that Moses was to present himself to Pharaoh as he went to the water or to the Nile River. Pharaoh and the Egyptians worshipped the gods of the Nile, so it was probably his ritual to go to the river each morning to worship. The second similarity is that Moses was to tell Pharaoh to let his people go so they could worship him. Third similarity would be that Moses will announce the fourth plague. The fourth plague will consist of swarms of flies being sent on Pharaoh and his officials and on the people and in their houses. It would be a complete infestation where they lived. Even the ground would be infested. There would be so many flies that Stuart says, you wouldn't even be able to put a foot down without stepping on a lot of them. Imagine that. When there's 10 in your house, what do you do? Imagine zillions. There would be no escape from them. In verse 21, we see a play on words. If Pharaoh will not send God's people out of Egypt, God will send swarms of flies against Egypt. This language of sinned against was a sign of a divine response and punishment for his people being enslaved in Egypt. The choice was Pharaoh's. You know, he could have, God had the plague stopped 
but he didn't. And the question is, would he be obedient to Almighty God or not? Now, these swarms of flies were not your ordinary house fly. They were made up of many different kinds of insects. Some of the ones that I read about were dog flies, sand flies, horse flies, march flies, fleas, mosquitoes, midges, and even, they think, some gnats again. And the Septuagint identifies them as biting insects. This plague would be a complete infestation of biting insects sent against Pharaoh, his officials, and the Egyptian people. There would be nowhere that, these, that the people could go that these insects could not get them and bite them. We also see some differences with the first plague. First, Moses did not have to identify the Lord to Pharaoh. We saw back in chapter 7, verse 16, that Moses identified the Lord as the God of the Hebrews. But after three plagues, Pharaoh knew it was Yahweh who was sending these plagues against him. Second, Moses didn't need to identify where the Israelite people were going to go. Pharaoh didn't need to be reminded that God had commanded them to go three days into the, into the desert. Leaving that part out may have fueled Pharaoh's compromising response that we'll see later on in the narrative. Third, the, the magicians were not present, and Pharaoh will not call them. Pharaoh knew that after the plague of gnats, that his gods were defeated, and that there was no reason to summon the magicians. We also see that Aaron is absent, signifying that this is now between Moses and Pharaoh. Fourth, no staff would be needed to perform this miraculous sign. This would be a direct display of God's power. All the Lord will have to do is speak, and the plague would happen. That brings us to our first principle this morning, that God is all-powerful. You know, we've seen this time and time again in our narrative. Fifth, the first and second plagues were attack on the water, as all the water above ground was turned to blood, and the frogs came out of the Nile. The third plague was an attack on the earth, as the dust of the ground became gnats, but this fourth plague will be different. It will be an attack on the air as swarms of flies overtake Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Like the frogs, the fly was revered because they seemed to bring life out of death. Ross says, as the maggots came crawling out of rotting flesh only to fly away, they manifested a power over death that was very appealing to a people obsessed with surviving after death. This plague seems to be connected to the it's Newman fly, which the Egyptians considered a manifestation of the god Uachit. There also was a connection with Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. Beelzebub was actually a tool of Satan and one of the representations of Satan's power in Egypt. Luke eleven fifteen says this. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he, meaning Jesus, is driving out demons. Dunham says they depended on Beelzebub to guard them against ravenous flies. But this plague convinced them that he was impotent, causing them to look elsewhere for relief. You know, the Lord has complete sovereignty and power over all the gods of the world, but especially the gods of e Egypt. He's also in control of all nature. That brings us to our second principle this morning, that God is in control of all nature. He's in control of the water. He's in control of the earth and the air. 
He created all nature. He sustains all nature. And we can worship him for that this morning. Lastly, and probably the greatest difference between the fourth plague and the others, is that we are now told explicitly that the plagues of flies would not happen in Goshen, where God's people resided. The question we ask is, has Goshen been exempt from the plague so far? Stewart says this, At this point, Moses chose to make the distinction explicit. It will appear as a feature in some of the subsequent plague accounts as well, Numbers 5, 7, 9, and 10, but not in all of them, indicating that the cases where the distinction is overtly described are intended to suggest to the reader the general pattern that prevailed in all 10 plagues. So it is possible that Goshen was exempt, and we're only now being told. Pharaoh may or may not have been aware, but he is also now being told. And he will not be able to ignore the fact that the Lord God of the Hebrews is bringing these plagues. The Lord was going to deal differently with the land where his chosen people lived. The Lord was going to make a distinction between the Israelites, God's people, and the Egyptians, Pharaoh's people. The complete infestation of flies that the Lord promised to sin against Egypt would be non-existent in the land of Goshen, where his people were living. And the reason given for this was that Pharaoh would know that he, the Lord, is in the land. Now, Pharaoh thought that he was the king of Egypt. He thought he was in control of his land, that he welded the power there. But the Lord was going to let him know that that was not the case. Yahweh is the Lord of all the world, even the land of Egypt, and all power is his. The fact that this would only happen in Egypt and not in Goshen would be a miraculous sign from the Lord. It would also be miraculous because it would have a starting time, which would be the next day. This would prove that the plague of flies was not a natural phenomenon or something that just happened by chance. This sign was supposed to change the heart of Pharaoh into softening it softening and letting God's chosen people go. But it was also a sign to the Israelites that they were still God's chosen people. Maganay says this, this degree of discrimination moves the events beyond a natural cataclysm into a precise divine intervention. Here God has granted his people a serene immunity because they are, after all, his people. The language of knowing and sign actually should have been a sign to Pharaoh of future disaster. This same distinction would be made again in Exodus 11:7, with the death of the firstborn sons. Even the word ruin, used in verse 24, points to something more disastrous than just a fly infestation. We see that Pharaoh did not comply with the Lord's command. And dense swarms of flies came into Pharaoh's palace, houses of his officials, and throughout Egypt. It says the land was ruined, or meaning corrupted by the flies. This corruption would have kept the Egyptians from worshiping their gods because of being unclean, which we actually saw the last time that we were in Exodus with the plague of gnats. The imperfect form of the verb ruin is used to signify that the ruining continued for a period of time. Riken says these were blood-sucking bugs that tormented both man and beast. 
Literally, the swarms are described as heavy, meaning they were so numerous that they became a burden to the Egyptians. Psalm 78, 45 says this, he sent swarms of flies that devoured them. These biting flies terrorized the people and devastated the countryside. They fed on the people and devoured them. And again, we see the principle that God is all-powerful, as he's able to use even the smallest of his creations with such destructive force. So now that the land was infested with flies, you know, we could expect Pharaoh to comply with the Lord's demands to let his people go. And that brings us to our second point this morning called compromise, found in verses 25 to 29. Again, follow along as I read. That's what God's word says. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he command, uh, commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. We don't know how long it took Pharaoh to summon Moses and Aaron, but once it happened, they may have been thinking that, hey, he's ready to let us go. He's ready to let the Israelites go worship to the Lord. Pharaoh wanted relief and had seemingly started to crack under the burden of these flies. He was now willing to let the Israelites go, but he was not willing to let them go to the desert. Instead, he was only willing to allow them a holiday in order to sacrifice to their God in the land of Egypt. This may have been seen as a capitulation on Pharaoh's part, but it really wasn't. They would continue to be under his jurisdiction, and he would not have to recognize their God's superiority. But interestingly, Pharaoh now admits the existence and power of the Lord that he claimed earlier to not know. But even now, he only recognizes him as the God of the Hebrews and not as God of all creation. Pharaoh was offering to make a deal with Moses and Aaron to compromise that which God had promised them, which was total freedom from slavery for something much less. Nothing but the complete release of God's chosen people out of the land of Egypt and out of slavery was going to do. These were God's people, not Pharaoh's. They were created to worship the one true God of the universe, the Lord God Almighty, not Pharaoh. That brings us to our third principle this morning, that God is pleased when we fulfill our created purpose to worship him and him alone. We see this in Psalm 148.5. It says, let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created. And Psalm 86, 9 says, All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. And then in Exodus 20, verse 3, From the Ten Commandments you shall have no other gods before me. We were created to worship the Lord, 
which is why God brought these plagues against Egypt, so his people could be free to worship him and him alone. And that brings us to our first next step on the back of your communication card this morning, which is to fulfill my created purpose to worship the Lord and have no other gods before him. Next, we see Moses' response to Pharaoh's compromise. This was not going to fly with God nor with Moses. Moses knows that staying in Egypt would violate God's command and refuses to compromise, saying that sacrificing the Lord in the land of Egypt would, be, would not be right. These sacrifices would make them detestable to the Egyptians and would cause them to stone them. Cole says, Moses refuses on the grounds that to sacrifice in Egypt would be like killing a pig in a Muslim mosque or slaughtering a cow in a Hindu temple. In a sense that the Egyptians would consider the sacrifice of a sacred animal as blasphemous. The Egyptians would stone the Israelites on principle. Then Moses reiterates that they must take a three-day journey into the desert. This is because the Lord has commanded them to do that. Pharaoh knew that this three-day journey meant he would never see the Israelites again. He would lose his free slave labor force, and that was something he wasn't going to do. We see the truth that Pharaoh knew that the Israelites wouldn't be able to get away with making sacrifices in the midst of the Egyptians because he didn't argue with Moses about it. But he immediately tried to get Moses to compromise again. Now he said that he would let the people go as long as he didn't go too far. He seemed to be allowing them to leave, but really, he was keeping them on a short leash. They could only go as far as he could send his army after them to easily bring them back. This was as far as Pharaoh was going to go, even with the plague of flies ruining his land. This goes to show that it wasn't about the Israelites worshiping their God. It was about the Israelites' freedom and whose they really were. I will let you go shows that Pharaoh believed he still owned and controlled God's chosen people. I like this quote from Spurgeon. They were not Pharaoh's people. Pharaoh never chose them. He had never brought them where they were. He had not fought with them and overcome them. They were not captives in war, nor did they dwell in the territory which was the spoil of fair conflict. As Christ followers, we're called to be in the world, but not of it. We can't compromise by worshiping in the land or worshiping the way the world wants us to. The world might say, worship on Sundays, but the rest of the week, do whatever you want. The world would say, go ahead and worship, but don't be extreme. God will be okay with a little bit of worship or half-hearted worship. No. We are to be obedient to the Lord and leave sin behind completely. Satan wants Christians to mix the world and the church to the point where there is no distinction between God's people and his people. Instead of being hated by the world like Jesus was, Christians are joining the world and blurring the lines. We want to offer sacrifices to God, but remain within the friendly confines of Egypt. But our scripture teaches us that we must not settle for the deals that Satan wants, us, wants to make with us to compromise with the world. In order to truly and properly worship the Lord, we must do a couple things. One, we must leave Egypt for the wilderness 
and ultimately the promised land. And two, we must be in total obedience to the Lord. We can't compromise our faith. We must obey Jesus completely without compromise. Again, I like how Spurgeon explained it. God's demand is not that his people should have some little liberty, some little rest in their sin. No. But they should go right out of Egypt. Christ did not come into the world merely to make our sin more tolerable, but to deliver us right away from it. He did not come to make hell less hot, or sin less damnable, or our lust less mighty, but to put all these things far away from his people and work out a complete and full deliverance. Christ has not come to make people less sinful, but to make them leave off sin altogether. Not to make them less miserable, but to put their miseries right away and give them joy and peace in believing in him. The deliverance must be complete or else there is no deliverance at all. When it comes to obeying the Lord, there can be no deals and no compromise. And that brings us to our second next step this morning which is to obey the Lord completely, leaving Egypt, the world, and compromise behind. Pharaoh then asked Moses to pray for him. Now, pray for me shows Pharaoh knew exactly who these plagues were coming from and how they could be stopped, which is by humbly appealing to the Lord. Moses tells Pharaoh that as soon as he leaves him, he will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will be gone. This would be proof to Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and also to the Israelites that this plague was another miraculous sign from the Lord. The fact that the flies would leave at the precise moment that Moses said they would would be all the proof Pharaoh needed to know the Lord and let God's people go. Pharaoh had already hardened his heart three times, so Moses warns Pharaoh to not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to make their sacrifices to the Lord. So after the plague of flies ruined the land and Pharaoh tries to get Moses to compromise by not going too far from Egypt, we now come to our third point this morning, which is choice, found in verses 30 to 32. This is what God's word says. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Moses leaves Pharaoh and prays to the Lord just as he promised, and the Lord did just as he promised Moses he would. The flies are gone. They left Pharaoh, his officials, and his people. And again, it says not one fly remained. Now Pharaoh had a choice to make. He could choose to let God's people go, or he could choose to harden his heart again. That brings us to our fourth principle this morning, that God is pleased when we choose him as our Lord. God wants us to be obedient to him. He's long-suffering, not wanting anyone to perish. And this was true of Pharaoh as well. God longed for Pharaoh to choose repentance and begin to serve and worship him. God wanted to show his mercy towards Pharaoh instead of forcing him into submission. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he resolved to stand against God and God's people. You know, making choices is a privilege and price of being human. Every choice we make forms our character 
And the more choices we, we make forms a habit within us. As responsible human beings, we need to make proper moral choices. And we become, become Christ followers. God calls us to choose obedience to him. And every time we do it, forms our Christian character. But if we choose to not obey the Lord and harden our hearts toward him, then we form a different kind of character. No one knows when that point of no return will be, which is where Pharaoh found himself. He had hardened his heart to the Lord and his people for so long and so many times that he was beyond that point of no return. And he would reap the punishment of his choices, not only for himself, but for the Egyptian people as well. You know, maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you've been hardening your heart toward the Lord for a while now. He's been pursuing you, and you've continued to put him off. If you're able to recognize this, and you're not too far gone like Pharaoh was, we all have a choice to make when confronted by the Lord. You can still choose to soften your heart, bow before Almighty God, and accept him as your Savior and make him Lord of your life. That brings us to our last next step this morning, which is to soften my heart, bow before Almighty God, accept him as my Savior, and live in obedience to him and his commands. I want to end with two short illustrations. In the early 1900s through the 1960s, Broadway Presbyterian Church was a powerful witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Upper Manhattan. But from the 1960s to the 1990s, a subtle change began to take place. A change in emphasis stole in as massive feeding programs for the homeless were undertaken. Church membership slipped from 1,000 to 120. In the soup kitchen, prayers were not even offered over meals out of concern that the clients might resent it. And it was discovered that the same people were coming through the lines year after year. There was no change taking place in their lives. What happened? The decisive point of the battle the gospel of Jesus Christ had been surrendered. Free food does not transform lives. The resurrected Christ transforms lives. Second comes from A.T. Pearson. Suppose you had a thousand acre farm and someone offered to buy it. You agree to sell the land except for one acre right in the center, which you want to keep for yourself. Did you know that in some areas the law would allow you to have access to that one lone spot? And that you would have a right to build a road across the surrounding property in order to get to it? So it is with us as Christians, if we make less than 100% surrender to God, we can be sure that the devil will take advantage of any inroad to reach that uncommitted area of our lives. You know, we've all heard Satan say at one time or the other, let's make a deal. He has tempted us to trade something precious for something worthless. He has tempted us to trade our testimony for empty promises and wasted years. But the great thing about our God is his mercy, grace, and forgiveness. When we fall, Jesus will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will restore us to life in him. 
So I want to encourage all of us this morning that with the help of the Holy Spirit within us, we do, do not have to fall for Satan's deals and compromises. And if we do, our Heavenly Father will let us trade in that which the devil has given us for something more precious than gold. As the ushers come to collect the tithes and offering, and praise team comes to lead us in a final song. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I uh, thank you for your word. It is true, and it tells us of your mighty deeds for your people. We can trust in it for our lives, and I praise you that you are all-powerful and that you are in control of all nature. I praise you that you have created us to worship you and you alone, and that we can choose you as our Lord. Help us to fulfill our created purpose by worshiping you and having no other gods before you. Help us to obey you completely, leaving Egypt and compromise behind. And Lord, I pray that we would all soften our hearts towards you, bow before you, accept you as our Savior, and live in obedience to you and your commands. In Jesus' name, amen.